Welcome back. This is the capsule on the case of Auten VBC. This is our fourth class already, um, Wednesday of the second week. So let's recap a little bit what we've seen so far. So the first week, right, I gave you a reading that gave you a very broad overview of the case law, generally from the Supreme Court of Canada under Section 15 of the Charter, right? Section 15 is a part of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? Generally, that means that the rights that we find there can invalidate various other laws, which the Charter itself is part of the Constitution Act 1982. So when um, Trudeau Pair brought back the Constitution to Canada, we added a charter in there that significantly expanded the role of courts and that courts now had the responsibility to invalidate laws that were not compliant with the Constitution, which also meant developing various tests under the Constitution to assess whether laws are compliant. Specifically, our focus from this course, for this course is, is generally on Section 15 of the Canadian Charter. So we adopt a very public law federal focus. We don't look at various other protections of equality and discrimination under provincial human rights codes. And I explained that in the first session as to why, right, I think for our purposes, section 15 is the most relevant. Then, right, we considered the provision itself in greater detail. So that role of the court we saw in action is we saw the court define, right, an, a provision that is really two or three sentences long. It says, People have a right, right not to be discriminated upon, to be treated equally under, pursuant to the law, right, including based on various things, right, which are what we call the enumerated grounds. And that's a list, you'll recall, that is not limitative, right? It's a list that's not complete, and therefore, right, as a plaintiff, you're not barred from alleging that you, be, you are being discriminated against based on something similar that is not listed there. And the courts had a very significant role in defining that provision, right? Because the three sentences there are not a test. They don't tell you how to apply it. And the courts over time, generally the Supreme Court of Canada over the 10, 20 years, more intensively after the Constitution Act 1982, had a role in defining what the provision meant, and specifically in coming up with the tests that we now apply to assess whether or not there's infringement. So for the first week, we had a reading that looked at the case law in section 15 generally that was very helpful because it gave you an overview, a summary overview of various cases that have, that have defined section 15 over time up to today and gave you an overview that wasn't limited to just 15.1 and 15.2 as we specifically considered more um, recently in our past two sessions. Then for our second class, we turn to section 15.2. 15.1 says you can't discriminate, right? 15.2 says, well, sometimes you can discriminate, right? So the government is not prevented by virtue of 15.1 from enacting ameliorative programs. So the government's not prevented from, right, trying to eradicate existing discrimination by giving generally specific rights and privileges to specific groups of people. 
We started with that because it's easier. 15.2 is somewhat easier than 15.1, right? In the last session, we looked at that monster of a case, Law v. Canada, which defined the principles under 15.1. So essentially defined what it is that we mean by discrimination under the Canadian Charter. And we looked at a very long case with very important principles that give you both background on the purpose and effect of, of Section 15, but also on right, the way it's applied in practice, a general framework of analysis. So not just tests, right? not just the underlying purpose, but also how we think through these issues. So conceptual factors, indicative factors, right? A definition of discrimination, right, that the court goes on about for several pages after acknowledging that discrimination is hard to define. And that is a general framework that's always helpful, right, in assessing the first question that generally comes up in all Section 15 cases, right, as we look at more complex and different issues, right, the starting point still generally is whether there's infringement, right? Because regardless of the other things, generally there's no infringement, right? You shouldn't be before the court and you won't get the remedy that you are asking for. Now we move forward from 15.1 and 2, try to look at some more specific issues that are relevant under the Supreme Court, generally um, Supreme Court's um, Section 15 jurisprudence. Specifically, Right. Um, in this case, we consider the concept um, that I've discussed quite extensively of positive obligations. It's something I alluded to earlier, right? Um, in the last session, actually, right? I mentioned that the court asks a lot of the government. That's my opinion, at least, right? So the court's going to ask the government not just to pass a law with a purpose, right? That is one of the requirements. So the government has to pass a law that makes sense. So pass a law, right, that based on what it does, for instance, giving pensions to people, has the potential, right, logically, sensibly, to achieve its underlying purpose. For instance, eradicating poverty. That's not all, right? And that's pretty low bar, right? On top of that, we expect the government to proactively consider whether or not there is or will be a Section 15 infringement. In other words, you can't go to court as the government and say, well, we didn't think about it, right? We didn't think of the fact that our law has a disproportionate impact on, say, people who practice a certain religion and therefore have a certain religious holiday. The court very specifically says in law, right, in the law case, that it expects the government to think about that. So when it passes a law to consider at what the to consider what the various groups of people who are affected are, and then to consider the impact of the law on these various groups of people, and then to consider whether there is discrimination. If there is, right, generally the law is going to be invalidated because we expect the government to think about it. Oftentimes, arguably, right, that might impose an obligation for the government to pass certain types of laws, right? And I want to be careful here because that's a distinction that we're going to draw today. So the government has an obligation in the sense that I've just described 
to consider various contingencies, right, and various groups of people and use that in its design of the law if it doesn't want the Supreme Court to strike it down the next day. That's an obligation that requires the government to kind of do things proactively, to assess things beforehand. That's an obligation that we might call similar to a positive obligation. A positive obligation is an obligation for government to do something, right? So in law, generally we're more comfortable with what we call non-positive obligations, right? So generally an injunction, right? If someone is polluting your land, right? They're, they're throwing stuff on your land, right? Well, then you can go to court and ask for what we call an injunction, and that is a court paper that says to the person, you have to stop polluting their land, right? That's a remedy. One of the remedy is you ask for money. Another remedy is you get a court paper that says the person has to stop doing it. But that is a negative, right, obligation or expectation. The person has to stop polluting your land. And generally that's something that we think doesn't really restrain people's freedom too much, right? We think to ask the person to stop polluting is okay, right? It's not something that offends human consciousness such that we'll say, well, she should compensate you with money because it is a violation of her liberty to tell her to stop, right? Conversely though, we're not generally comfortable with forcing people to do things. You might argue that it has something to do with slavery, right? Generally forcing people to do things is what we call slavery, right? So say a person, right, doesn't show up to work. Well then you could technically go to court and say, well, I don't want damages. I want what we call specific performance. In other words, I want the person to come to work. And so you're going to have a court paper that would say the person has to show up to work. And then ostensibly there's all sorts of issues with that, right? How'd you force them? Do you get the police involved? And then it, it does seem like it offends human dignity, even though the person's clearly done something wrong in breaching the contract to specifically force the person to do something, even to the extent that it's something that the person has agreed to do, in that case by entering voluntarily into a contract. This is a distinction there, and generally we're not comfortable with positive obligations. In the case of contract law, specific performance, as we call it. So generally you'll get an injunction to get someone to stop, or money, and generally if you want the person to do something as opposed to not do something, the remedy is going to be money. Similarly, generally under section 15, we're concerned with preventing the government from doing bad things, preventing the government from passing bad discriminatory laws. And we have this device, right, constitution, that allows courts to invalidate laws that offend certain rights, and therefore the court has the power, right, the constitutional prerogative, because there's another section of the constitution that says that's what courts do, right, court has a prerogative to strike down the law, to say, well, that doesn't respect the rights of the people who are involved and therefore the law is invalid, right? Because it offends the constitution and generally, right, to make things simpler for our purposes, you can't really have a law that offends the constitution. Well, that is kind of similar to a negative obligation, right? 
the government does something bad and then you get the government to stop. Namely, you invalidate the law and therefore the government doesn't do the bad thing anymore because the bad thing is done pursuant to the law. There's also something that we call right, a judicial interest that says you have to have a reason to go to court, a dispute to go to court, right? So you can't go to court and say, right, my neighbor's friend is really rude to him, but he won't sue, so I'll sue for him. Well, you can't do that. You don't have a, an interest, a legal interest, you can go to court about. The person has to do it herself. Similarly, you can't go to court and say, I expect the person will breach your contract two weeks from now. It has to have happened, there has to be a judicial legal interest, and there has to be a, some sort of a dispute. Similarly, for these two reasons, you can't go to court and say, I want the government to pass a law because my status is bad. So you can't go to court and say, right, because first there's no law that discriminates against you. So based on that judicial interest I've just mentioned, right, you couldn't go to court because you wouldn't have a reason to be there, right? Your rights wouldn't be infringed upon by something, at least the way it's construed in the legal system. But second, you'd not be asking for the court to invalidate a law. You'd be asking for the court to tell the government to pass a law. And so even though you're disadvantaged, even though you're in a very poor and unfair discriminatory position, it's generally not, right, almost always not the role of courts to come in and tell the government pass a law because governments pass laws, courts check them, right? They don't order the government around except to the extent that a law is not valid. And therefore, even though it is true, the Constitution doesn't protect you on that. The Constitution doesn't force the government to pass a law. That is a positive obligation. And generally, there is no positive obligation incumbent upon the government, whether it's the federal government, the provincial government, right? I said the charter applies to public bodies, right? That is generally governments, includes provincial governments, federal government, government agencies, administrative agencies, anything created by a law that has something to do with the government, right? Generally speaking, right? The court doesn't say, go pass a law to protect that person, and the charter does not give you that right. Or you might go further and say, the charter doesn't give the court that right. The right to order the government around and say, you gotta pass a law because the status is too bad. An example might be, right, you want, say you're homeless, right? You say, well, this violates my, my rights. It might be, right? It might be discriminatory. It might be discriminatory distinction based upon the analogous or enumerated grounds, therefore you meet um, the two steps, right? But you can't go to court and say, I want a house or I want money from the government because the government has to proactively help my rights not be infringed. All that to say, positive obligations generally are not something that you can ask for. That's the big takeaway here. However, sometimes the line is blurred, right? Sometimes when the court asks the government to do lots of things, as I mentioned earlier, when the court asks the government to proactively consider the impact of a law, then you might argue that that's kind of similar to a positive obligation. Why is that? 
Well, because what's going to happen? Government's going to pass a law that's, that doesn't respect that, doesn't consider people. The court's going to strike it down. Well, then the government might want that law, right? Say the government passes a pension scheme. Well, arguably, they want a pension scheme. Therefore, if the court strikes it down the next day, the government's going to start over and pass a better pension scheme, one that withstands constitutional scrutiny. Well, then, right, really the government is following the court's instructions. And then if the pension scheme is again bad, the court's going to strike it down again, and the government's going to have to do basically what the court said. And we'll see that's kind of the distinction that we see in the dissent here, right? The dissenting judges there really say things that are somewhat similar to that. So the majority says the basic, very clear rule that I just mentioned. There is no positive obligation of the government to pass a law by virtue of the charter. But the dissent says, right, both for this week and next week, right, that um, that, that specifically, right, we don't necessarily, right, tell the government to do things, but sometimes we do, and therefore in that case we should. That's basically what some of the dissenting judges are going to say um, in the case that we're going to read, I think, for next session. So here we're concerned with, right, it's a case about, well, again, let's look at the contextual information. Hopefully you've started doing that already because I've said it over and over again, right? What is this? 2004 case. This is significant. What does it tell us, right? Somewhat old. Some of the principles might have changed, but still decided quite a bit after the charter was enacted in 1982. Then you have a bunch of interveners, right, that are listed on the first page. Generally, that's how you know it gets to the Supreme Court. It's not really about the person or the facts as much as it's about the law. And then you have all sorts of special interest groups who want to come in and make sure that their preferred policy position is at least heard and considered by the court. We'll do the same thing we did um, in, in the past few weeks, right? We'll go over the summary of the case and then we'll go over a couple more details. As I mentioned, you never cite to the headnote in your papers. You always cite to a page number if it's a um, case that doesn't have a neutral reference, like the one for this week, or, um, or the one for this week has a neutral reference, sorry. So you can either cite to pages or paragraphs. If there's no neutral reference, then you cite to the page number in the reporter that I've given you. This is on appeal from the Court of British, um, the, the Supreme Court, Court of Appeal for British Columbia, right, um, ostensibly before it was renamed. And what do we have here, right? And we have to be careful to frame the specific issue here very carefully because it changes the nature of what the court says, right? So we have basically autism services. So we have, right, kids who are basically not given specific services that they want. And, right, this is framed as a failure to fund autism services. So, as I said, you can't go to court and say, I want the government to give more money to, to, to fund um, services for autistic kids, right? You know, that might be very legitimate policy preference 
It's not the role of the court. And you might be right that it's discriminatory, right? So very typically you might say, right? I go to school, right? My, my, my kids, non-disabled kids go to school, they get access to school. Well, if I have a kid with autism, well, then I have to send them to a specialized school. There's none that's available, right? And then I have to pay a lot of money. That's a distinction, right? Based on a ground, namely, dis namely disability. And therefore, ostensibly, it is a discriminatory distinction that might offend Section 15 of the Charter. But there's no positive obligation. So if your argument is, give more money, I want my kid to get access to that school. It's not a constitutional argument because it's not a matter of the government having passed a law that has a disproportionate impact on your kid. It's a matter of the government having not passed a law, not allocated funds, right? Generally funds are spent because there's a legislative, um, there's legislative authorization to spend them, right? The government hasn't done that and therefore I want the government to do it. Here this is categorized as a failure to fund, right? But we have to be careful. It is a new program, right? So it's not a program, right, that the, the parents want access to that's been, right, a proven way for kids to access something that other kids have access to. In that case, if the, the distinction is by law, then it might be a problem, right? But here it's a new program and that gives the government some reasons, right? First, the government has to do what we call balancing. That's often going to be a consideration. And second, right, the government says, well, we're not sure about this, right? We're not sure this, this treatment works and therefore, right, we don't want to dedicate 60 grand per kid now. And that's going to be significant. These are the characteristics of the issue there. Second, balancing, right? One of the reasons why we don't impose positive obligations upon the government is because the government, right, recall I said, has the power to pass laws, whereas courts strike them down. Courts don't write laws. They don't tell the government to pass laws. They just tell the government when they messed up in a way that courts are allowed to tell the government pursuant to the Constitution. And therefore, right, court doesn't tell the government, you have to pass a law, this person's really disadvantaged. It's also because the government has a prerogative to make these decisions, right? Government is generally free to do things within the bounds of the Constitution, and that includes passing or not passing certain laws, for our purposes under Section 15, very significantly creating or not creating certain programs, including programs that might be necessary to combat discrimination, including programs that might, absent their existence, right, create discrimination. But the government has a prerogative to fund. And so here the government raises this balancing issue, right? The government says, well, we don't got money, right? This is not an old thing for governments to say, right? We have limited funds, we have to make decisions, and we really like and care about autistic kids, but we just don't have the money to give more money now. We gave some, but we can't give any more. Well, ostensibly, unless there's a law 
that creates a discriminatory distinction. That's going to be the takeaway. I've already emphasized it probably too many times. That's going to be the takeaway. There has to be a law. There has to be a basis, right? A government action that discriminates, not government inaction, not government lack of a decision, right? So the government has the, the, the prerogative by virtue of the Constitution, as long as it doesn't pass discriminatory laws, to make these decisions, right? To decide where the money goes, including by making a decision that it's not going to fully fund services for autistic kids. And that's one of the main arguments that the government raises, right? Then we have what are called financial constraints. Basically, the government says, right, we can't give more money, right? And this is all very interesting. The case law has evolved somewhat, but the result hasn't. I've written an article on this that you might find interesting. I'll probably send it to you within um, the week. But, right, generally, the government has signed, the Canadian government has signed various international, um, international instruments, right? United Nations declarations that generally say a lot of things that the government doesn't really have to respect then, right? So the government's going to sign recognitions of various rights, but these international obligations don't have, generally speaking, any force under domestic laws unless they're passed, right? So the government is going to have to pass a law that's going to be like Bill 1 that says the same thing as the convention, and then you'll be able to go to court and say the government hasn't respected these obligations. So the argument has been made in court since the government signed um, the United Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities saying, well, the government said we have to have access to inclusive education. So essentially what that means, right, you have to adapt the education system to make it inclusive to generally all students with disabilities. Some people went to court and said, doesn't respect that. The court said convention doesn't have force of law, right? So funding, especially for autistic kids, especially in Ontario within the past couple of years, has been a very live issue before the courts, but the rhetoric of the court hasn't really changed um, over the past almost 20 years there. So, of course, going to reiterate the test. I'll just write it down here, so I want you to remember it, right? Probably the simplest test you've ever learned about um, in law. First, there has to be a distinction, right, under 15.1, that is, right? That's the test to assess whether there is um, impermissible discrimination under subsection 15.1 of the Charter, right? Very simple. First, there has to be distinction. Second, it has to be discriminatory. And in assessing that, we look at the ground, so not just any sort of discrimination, not just any sort of distinction, one that is on the basis of an enumerated or analogous ground. Here, right, there's arguably distinction, of course, based on disability. However, the court finds that, right, it is not provided by law. So, I said the Charter applies to public bodies. Section 15 applies to fewer public bodies. Something to recall from the onset. So, I said the Charter generally applies to the government, right? 
That's generally convenient because the government passes laws, and so laws have to respect the Constitution. And, right, on top of that, that means you can't sue a private person for having infringed upon your constitutional rights because that person doesn't have an obligation to respect your constitutional rights, at least not by virtue of the Constitution itself. Section 15 is even more. Section 15 says, right, we don't want a distinction provided by law, under the law. There's a bunch of, right, ways to put it there in the provision itself, and so there's a very clear specific mention of laws. So generally, Section 15 is going to be somewhat narrower. I didn't mention that yet, not to confuse you, but Section 15 is going to be somewhat narrower. It's not going to apply to all government action. It's going to apply to government action that creates distinction based on a law. But that doesn't mean it has to be the law itself. Often can be its effects, right? As we mentioned, very rarely are we going to have a law that says we don't provide benefits to Jews, right? Often there will be something more nuanced that says, right, we give Sundays off that's unfair to people who don't have a religious holiday on a Sunday, right? That's a, a distinction based on effect. That's still a distinction under the law. And on top of that, you can have a law that's applied discriminatorily, and that's also allowed. So the government might have a law that's fine. Right? So the government might have a law that says we give pensions to everybody, but then the government might decide not to give pension to, um, I'm talking a lot about Jews, but to give the same example, right, to Jews, right, or to any other group or religion, government might decide not to give them a pension, even if the law says otherwise. And that is the application of the law, and that is still a distinction under the law within the meaning of subsection 15.1. In other words, can be discriminatory even if it's not the law itself. So all that to say, 15 has a somewhat narrower scope than the rest of the charter because it does apply to all public action, right? But when it is about laws, as opposed to all public action and laws, the term under the law, pursuant to the law, is understood somewhat broadly. So what do we find here? It is not provided by law, and that's the key finding there. So the court says what you're asking for, the funding for the services is not provided by law. Therefore, we can't do anything because we don't tell the government to pass laws. We don't tell the government, your law sucks, add funding for autism. It doesn't work that way. And if it's not provided by law, it is not caught under the provision, both by virtue of the fact that we don't impose positive obligations to the government, and by virtue of what I've just said, which is the provision itself says a distinction under the law. It doesn't say, right, a distinction under a prospective law or a law that doesn't yet exist. And that's the key finding. So this is akin to people saying pass a law that provides funding for autism. It's not provided by law, not discrimination within the meaning of section 15. My discrimination, it's not constitutionally prohibited discrimination pursuant to section 15. However, 
it is a bit more nuanced here, and that's why we have the dissenting judges, right? So, sorry, we don't have dissenting judges here, but it is more nuanced, right? So, the government is going to pass the law, right? That basically, right, the way it's understood here is um, the law has, um, the law provides for very general things, right? So the law is going to say, right, public health care plus maybe more. That's what the law says. We'll go through the exercise of statutory interpretation now. So in Canada, you have a right, not a constitutional right, but a right by virtue of a federal law. And you have all these federal laws at the end of the case. It's pretty interesting to look at them, right? It says healthcare is free in Canada, right? That's a right that you have um, under federal law. And the federal government generally is not paramount to the provinces. So the, the federal government couldn't say, Alberta, you didn't provide free healthcare. We don't agree with that. But. Constitution says there's various competencies, right? So Constitution says the government, federal government passes laws on these things, and then the provincial governments pass laws on these things, right? One of the things for federal government might be railways, right? Or um, public finances, right? Long-term debt, right? Might be lots of things that the federal government handles, right? The things that the, the federal government has ministries for, right? immigration, right, refugee protection, right, so on and so forth. Then there's various things that the provincial governments have jurisdiction over, and generally these things are, right, things that provincial governments spend a lot of money on and have ministries for, generally healthcare and education, that's where the cost is, that's where most of the budgets for provinces go, healthcare and education, right, well, healthcare, as I said, is a provincial um, jurisdiction pursuant to the Constitution. So provinces pass laws, right, that say, right, what you do get within the healthcare system. Federal government, as I said, isn't paramount, is not over the provinces and can't go and say, you didn't give free healthcare, we have a law that says you have to give free healthcare. It doesn't work that way. They're kind of equal for our purposes. But, right, the reason of lots of things that we won't get into, generally, the federal government over time has had the tax points, right, has had the things that it makes money on, right, by charging taxes, and the provincial governments have had the things that they spend money on, right, so they get less taxation powers, more expenses, and generally they're the expenses that grow over time, especially healthcare, and so what happens, well, the federal government benevolently says, well, we got all this money now. What are we going to do? We'll give it to the provinces who have all that cost and who are going to end up in debt while we're living like kings, right? Well, what the federal government's allowed to do, although it is not allowed to pass laws on health care, because it's a provincial competence, as I said, right? It is allowed to give conditions. It's allowed to say, here's $5 billion, give free health care. And that's allowed because it's not legislation on healthcare, at least not as the courts construe it, it's a condition on the money, right? That's what the government does here, right? So the federal government is going to say free healthcare, 
and the provinces, you don't get the money unless you give free healthcare. So all the provinces are going to say, well, we got that $5 billion, here's our law on free healthcare. And that includes British Columbia has a law that says you get free healthcare in British Columbia. But it only covers certain things, right? We know for a fact that if you go to the, say, psychologist, right, um, occupational therapist or um, physiotherapist, all sorts of things, right, these things are not covered by public healthcare. What is covered is generally, right, emergency care, routine medical care, right, not, say, pills or um, various sorts of non-medical professionals. But of course, provinces can have laws that say, we'll give something more. And that's what BC is going to do here. BC is going to say, well, we're not just going to give the minimal level that is essentially mandated by the government, right? Not literally correct based on the explanation I've given, but essentially respect the conditions on the money, right? And do more. So in that case, provide some funding for autism. Well, in that case, you might say, the government has to, once it provides funding, provide adequate non-discriminatory funding. And that's where the case turns on, right? Case turns on this distinction and the court says, no, this is not, right, the government's provided funding discriminatorily or has passed a law that allocates it discriminatorily that might not have been allowed. This is about a new program. That's where the characteristics I've mentioned come in. It's a new program and therefore you want it to cover. It's not covered. Government doesn't have an obligation to cover it for the reasons I've mentioned already, right? And therefore, this is not provided by law. The lack of funding for your program is, just doesn't exist. There's no funding. It's not about the funding that exists that's discriminatory. There's just no funding by law. And therefore, you're asking essentially the way you would for a new program saying, we want this covered because it's unfair. And that is a positive obligation that the government is not obligated to respect pursuant to the Constitution. For and basically, that's what the court says, right? Court adopts a very literal interpretation of the provision. Court says, well, the federal law says you have a minimum, then you can do more. That's what the law says, right? The law doesn't say, well, if you do more, then you have to cover autism services. It doesn't say that. And specifically, new programs where you're not sure whether it works and where you claim you don't have money as the government. It just says you can cover more stuff. And so, of course, here, right, if you have a deaf person that doesn't get essential services, it won't be legal. Because the law says there has to be public health care. And therefore, even though you might need different type of emergency care, right? You might have an emergency that only happens to deaf people. This is admittedly not the best example in the world, right? But you might have an emergency that happens only to deaf people. Well, it's an emergency. Emergency care is public. And therefore, the hospital can turn you down and say, well, this wouldn't have happened to you if you weren't deaf. We won't treat you. That wouldn't be legal. But the maybe more part is not mandatory. It doesn't say what the maybe is and doesn't say that maybe has to be there. That's the interpretation of the court. That's why it's not provided by law. Therefore, the court decides cannot impose a positive obligation because that's what the law generally says.
And the court highlights these distinctions I mentioned, right, where if the money was allocated unfairly or if the distinction was provided by law, then perhaps the Supreme Court could have done something, but not here. And this is also what the court calls an exclusion, right? So here, right, the court is not going to cover certain things. So it's not going to misallocate what it has. It's not going to cover things unfairly to a certain group. It's just not going to cover certain autism services. Here, services for new treatments, right, that might not work. And therefore, that's the government's prerogative to decide. Then there's a claim, right, very brief, um, and this is a unanimous court. I got this wrong earlier. I'll highlight it. Um, that's what we should do in life, eh? Um, so it is a unanimous court like it was for the previous weeks, um, and unlike it is for the case for next session, which has a substantially similar holding, right, but about positive obligations where the court is willing to impose some positive obligations, right? So the court about a program, right, basically welfare is cut for younger people, right, the court's willing to add a positive obligation, essentially, to provide the welfare payments to these individuals. There's also a claim under Section 7. Section 7 is another one of your constitutional rights, which can invalidate provisions, of course, in the same way as Section 15, obviously our focus is on Section 15. Section 7 is your most convenient right, life, liberty, and security of the person. It's generally going to be the most expensive, right? Includes your right to do things that you want, not do things that you want, not be jailed, not be threatened, not be, right, unfairly put at risk of bodily harm and so forth, right? Well. There's a claim under Section 7, but the court basically says it wasn't argued properly and so rejects it. But again, our focus is, um, as it should be, on Section 15, like the court. Page 655, 665, sorry, court says there was a trial. And that's one of the things where the plaintiffs, that the plaintiffs used to argue that it's a discriminatory distinction, not lack of funding. Basically, the government had a pilot program. So the government, sorry, decided to cut it as opposed to not institute it. But I've already explained it with the court in the end decides on this, right? No new funding had been provided and a concrete plan remained to be developed. And the court even says pretty interestingly, right, doesn't seem to have been a good idea, right? The court says, in hindsight, the treatment works and it should have been provided. But of course, it's not the point of view, right? The point of view is at the time the law was passed and at the time the government didn't know. And so we can't expect the government to know. Of course, it says 667, right? This is not a medically necessary treatment, right? Because we explain this in great detail. If it were, then it would be a different story because that you have a right to and regardless of your particular characteristics, including disability. Court reiterates the analytical framework. Um, might be useful recap of what we saw in our last class on the law case 669, 
um, and following. I won't repeat it, the test um, I've already mentioned. Comparator group, purposive analysis, as I mentioned, comparator group, we don't focus on too much, not that important for our purposes because it's important to change. So, of course, in showing a discriminatory distinction, you'll have to show you're treated differently than somebody else, but that somebody else is not that relevant or not as relevant as it seems um, as it was when the court hit all these very tedious principles for how you pick the people, define the people, and so forth. Purposive analysis, again, I'll repeat it again, I've said it every class, right? 670 soaring following, right? We have to have an we have to have an analysis that furthers the underlying purpose of the provision, and that is substantive equality, right? So we look at how people are affected in effect, and we consider their characteristics and disadvantage. We don't just ask the government to be treating people all the same, and in fact, treating people all the same might be discrimination in itself, even though it is equal treatment, formally speaking. Distinction that has to be provided by law, just page reference there, 671 and 72, right? Court says it's not statutory, basically for the reasons that I've mentioned. I won't repeat them again. Um, this is page reference, not a core medically necessary service. Uh, good summary there, 673. In summary, right, legislative scheme that I've mentioned does not promise Canadians that they get funding for all treatment, right, even medically required in some circumstances. What's conferred is core funding for services that I've mentioned that we consider necessary provided by medical practitioners with funding for non-core services left to the province's discretion. The benefit here claimed, funding for, um, for the autism services, even if they were medically required, right, there's debate as to whether they were or not, was not provided by law for that reason because it was left to the discretion, right? So here there's a distinction that might be confusing. It's necessary services, right, are provided the court draws a distinction, says might be required but non-core. Basically, if it's really necessary, it is core, and therefore it has to be provided. The terminology is not particularly relevant, right? Principles I've explained are generally how you should construe it, and that's not something specifically about healthcare that's going to come up in further cases. Still important for you to understand the ratio here. Elridge. Um, interesting comparison. It's a case that um, the most um, attentive of you have seen in previous week. Um, so Elwidge is the case about deaf people. That's where I got my core example about um, a deaf person. Basically, right, government had provided a benefit, but didn't provide translators for deaf people. And therefore, obviously, benefit is technically provided to everyone. But if you're deaf, you can't access it because you don't have a translator. And there the court said, that's a distinction provided by law because the program has unfair effects. Basically, you shut out a bunch of people from accessing its benefits and therefore the government had to provide the translators. It's not the exact way to say it, of course. Court didn't say, pass a law that gives funding from the, for the translator. Court interpreted the law and said, right, 
it's either invalid or it's valid if you provide funding for translators. Um, governments allowed um, uh, summary there, 675 is helpful. Courts repeatedly held the legislature is under no obligation to create a particular benefit. It is free to target the social programs it wishes to fund as a matter of public policy. This is discretionary um, decision I've mentioned, right, to decide what you fund or don't fund, right, as a matter of public policy, provided the benefits itself. Once you pass a law, once you decide what you fund, then that program, that law, has to, of course, not be discriminatory, either in its purpose, effect, or all the things I've mentioned earlier in last week. Uh, pages 676 and following, this is where the court said, if it had been framed as, right, an unequal benefit provided by the programs, then the plaintiffs might have been successful. Court highlights the distinction on um, on uh, the program being new, right, not knowing whether it works, around page 679. Court says it's a bad public policy decision, as I've mentioned, 681, basically, Right, government made a bad decision, and also the government has to, right, it's stuck in that position because it made a bad policy decision as well in shifting the responsibility for the programs for autistic kids. I think outside of the Ministry of Health, basically that was a bad decision, but doesn't change the fact that the court cannot, right, tell the government to make better decisions, right? The court can invalidate a bad decision in the form of a law or some other public action provided by law the court can't tell the government specifically to do something. Um, this is also mentioned 682, court says, this is not whether the government met the gold standard of scientific methodology, it's about whether the government exercised its constitutional prerogative to pass laws um, in a way that is not discriminatory. Then you have the section 7 discussion, right, and you have the um, abridged provisions um, at the end, that basically uh, not particularly important, you'll probably have guessed that, that provide you an overview of that legislative scheme that provides right, the autism services, right, and the, the, legisl the underlying scheme that says right, what is covered as a necessary core, quote-unquote, service by the government. 